to go. We're here to, to worship you in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, putting no confidence in the flesh, but casting it all back on you. Father, because you are, as we just sang, you are the Redeemer, the Healer, you are Lord Almighty. You are our Savior, our Protector, our Defender, and in all of that, you're also our friend. Father, what incredible news we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Almighty God, the sovereign, holy, eternally existent one, desires through Christ to call us friend. Father, to pick us up, find us where we are, to show us our sin, Lord, in all of its ugliness, because we need to know the bad news and how very bad it is. But then, Father, to lift our eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ where his life was laid down, where his blood was shed, where the sacrifice was made, and as he himself said, the work was finished. And Father, now all you do is say to us, as as Jesus himself said, come to me. Jesus, you called yourself the bread of life. You called yourself living water, the door, the good shepherd. So many other things, Father, and we thank you that Jesus came to reveal all that about you and more, and that this morning, Father, whatever our needs, whatever our story, whatever our joys and, and the things we bring to praise you, Father, that we can, we can hand it all to you and say it's all thanks to you and your great name. Father, I don't know what kind of burdens anybody brought in with them this morning, but this is a time where before we press further, we can lay them down. Father, some here today are, are hurting, some are grieving, Father, some are angry, some are indifferent. Father, some of us may be filled to joy overflowing today. Father, we know that that all the blessings are from you and all the sorrows are known by you. And so, Father, we pause even while we stand just in, in the quietness of our hearts to bow and say, Lord, we hand it all back to you. Because you're the only one who can handle it, you're the only one who can deal with it, and you promise that you will. And Father, then we'll turn our attention now to your word and ask that as we do that, that that I would not be the teacher, but that you would be our teacher. Father, you by your spirit would be the one who comes and shows us what you want us to see, that teaches what you want us to know, that impresses the lessons that matter most on our hearts. Father, the outline and the big idea don't matter at all. What matters is that we see Jesus. So Father, for the next little while as we open your word, come now and guide us in the truth. Come now and guard us from error, from misunderstanding, from anything whatsoever that might get in the way. Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you come now and deliver our our hearts from from pride, from indifference, Father, from bitterness, from, from whatever else may be there. And truly, for the next little while, let us see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we look at your word, and may we see Jesus only this morning as we look at your word. And may we leave singing the praise of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're doing so, let's take a moment and we'll dismiss for Children's Church. We've got boys and girls here this morning who are anywhere from five years old up through second grade. Uh, they can head out for Children's Church. And I'd invite the rest of you as the kids are heading out to grab your Bible and turn with me as we resumed our study in the book of Acts last Sunday. Turn again to the book of Acts and specifically Acts chapter 9. We're going to seek to finish out this chapter as we continue pressing forward this morning and 
And I want to read the whole passage. I want to read it in its entirety right off the bat. So go ahead and find it as quick as you can. But even as you're turning there, let me just give you just a quick word. This doesn't have anything to do with the sermon, but it has a lot to do with the life of our church family. Just kind of an update as we're still sort of a couple weeks now past Commitment Sunday and, and trusting and waiting to see what God's going to do. We want to ask you specifically this morning, I'm going to take one minute to talk about this and then we'll get into this, to the message. We would like you to pray with us very fervently over the next few days as the plan at this point in this uh, plaza building endeavor is that on Wednesday we will be submitting our offer for that building. Uh, the, uh, the guys have met with the banks, we've begun to put all the details together and so on. Wednesday we plan, uh, barring some, something the Lord shows us differently, some change of plans, which if that's the case we'll do our best to inform you as quickly as we can, but on Wednesday that offer is going to be presented and so we want you to pray very specifically. We will remind you via email. Uh, to do that. Um, if you want to take that as a day of fasting, we haven't necessarily declared that as a church-wide day of fasting, but if you want to fast on that day, we would encourage you to do that as well. Uh, just that God's, of course, as we've said from the beginning, that God's will would be done and that we would follow it faithfully. So that's the latest. Uh, as, we, as, as things continue to develop, uh, of course, we'll keep you posted on that, but definitely wanted to take a moment to deal with that uh, that important bit of, of church business. But with that said, we're going to get back into Acts this morning. As I said, we're in Acts chapter 9, and last week we left off at the end of verse 31. So we're going to pick up reading today in Acts 30, uh, 9, 32. I'm going to read all the way down to the end of the chapter through verse 43. So if you have your Bible open, look at it. If you don't, get up next to somebody who does so you can follow along, as this is what the Word of God says. Luke writes, he says, Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, and those regions were mentioned in verse 31, Judea and Galilee and Samaria, basically, uh, you know, the areas surrounding Jerusalem where they were told to go and preach the gospel. It says, As Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints, the believers who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which in Greek is translated Dorcas, and this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Now since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose, and he went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her to them alive, and it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter then stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question, and the question is this, kind of an open-ended sort of thing for you to ponder for just a moment, but if you were asked to describe your best friend... The person in, you, in life you're closest to, that maybe you've shared the most experiences with, the person who means the most to you, if you were asked to describe your best friend, where would you start? And what would you say? Would you start by talking about their personality, as we might say, the kind of person they are? Or would you choose to begin with something about perhaps their physical appearance? 
Maybe you choose to tell a story. You tell the story of how you and that best friend first met or when it was that the relationship, the friendship really clicked and you realized you had something special that doesn't come along every day. Or maybe you tell the story of, of a great memory that was experienced together, something you went through that really forged a deeper bond of friendship and love toward one another. If you were asked to describe your best friend, where would you start and what would you say? Now, my hunch is that if you were allowed to talk long enough, all of those things and more would come into the conversation. You'd bounce from one thing to another, and, and all those sorts of different details, beginning, middle, where it is today, all of those things would be brought into the conversation. Yet at the same time, no two people, even if they were describing the same person, I said this person's my best friend, you said they're your best friend as well, even two people describing the same person wouldn't say the same things. Maybe some of the same details, but there'd be different angles and and perspective. You wouldn't share it all in the same way. My point is simply this, and this might sound like a weird concept, but bear with me. I'll try to, uh, I'll try to, try to sort of uh, spell it out for you. But my point in asking that question this morning is simply to say this, that relationships in life are not so much linear as they are circular. Relationships in life are not linear. That is, it's really tough to take your best friend or any friend and summarize your friendship in 25 words or less. Friendships aren't very easily and probably not even wisely boiled down to a series of bullet points. Here are the top five reasons this person is my best friend. Friendships are not so much linear as they are circular. They're sort of just this great big collection of stuff that all sort of fall under this heading or inside the circumference of friendship, and they spill over into one another, and the, and the details color each other. And, and the reason I want you to sort of begin with that imagery this morning, if you can, is because that's how I want to approach what we're going to look at in Acts chapter 9. Because where we pick things up this morning in verse 32, we found that last week at the end of verse 31, or in the, in the passage that we looked at, that Luke, the author of Acts, had taken Saul of Tarsus and sort of shuttled him off into the desert. For Remember, he goes away to be with the Lord and get grounded and grow in his faith. And having done that in the passage we looked at last week, now what Luke, the author of Acts, does is he turns his attention back to the apostle Peter. And the ministry that Peter was carrying out and had been carrying out since the Lord went back to heaven. And, and in the story we just read, if you were paying attention, you saw that in these 12 verses, Luke tells us about two dramatic miracles the apostle Peter performed. Two really remarkable scenes that he wanted us to know about that Peter experienced as a servant of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. As we dig into this passage this morning, it's not so much the miracles I want to focus on, as amazing and, and remarkable as they are. I mean, these are big deal miracles. These are exciting things, but I don't really want to focus on the miracles. Instead, what I want us to zero in on in God's word this morning is what the story of these miracles and everything we're told around them in these 12 verses, what they reveal to us about Peter's relationship with Jesus. What do they tell us about Peter's relationship with Jesus? And that's a task that I'm going to tell you right up front compels us to approach this passage differently than we normally do on Sunday morning and that we're going to kind of zip all over the passage back and forth because, again, relationships aren't linear. They're circular. It's stuff that's there all the time in different ways and to different degrees. But, but hopefully by the time we're done this morning, what we're going to come away with is this. What I want to deliver to you are four signs that Peter really walked with Jesus. Four signs that tell us, based on what we see here, that Peter was a man who walked with Jesus, had a relationship with Jesus. And my point, my hope in doing that, is that we'll come away from it with a better understanding of what it means for us to have a relationship with Jesus too. Not merely to be saved, though that's the important thing, 
But what does it mean that once we are saved to have a daily walk with Christ? So four signs that Peter was a man who walked with Jesus, the first of which is this, and we're going to sort of move from the general to the more particular. The first one that I see all over this passage is that Peter was a man who went about his business, who lived with a Jesus-like approach to life. Peter, the first sign that he was a man who walked with Jesus is that he approached life in a very Jesus-like kind of way. And here's where my thought that relationships are more circular than linear really begins to emerge. Because the evidence that Peter had a Jesus-like approach to life is all over this passage. You can't just confine it to the first two or, or three verses. And if I were to summarize, though, if I could summarize what what Peter's approach to life was like, what he had learned from Jesus that sort of compelled him and, and, and defined him as he went about life as a follower of Christ, I would say that Peter was a man who lived an intentional life. What Peter had learned from Jesus was to make life intentional. Look at what I mean in verse 32. It says, now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, again, he's been in Judea, he's been in Galilee, he's been in Samaria, was traveling through all those regions, what we need to understand before we go any further is that Luke is not conveying to us, and we're going to see this in a moment, communicating to us that in traveling all about those regions that Peter was just sort of going about life aimlessly like a nomad, just sort of wherever the wind may take him, wherever the latest breeze blows, I'll just kind of go around and, and see what there is to do and what's happening as if there was no point to his life, no, quite the contrary. Peter traveled about as we're about to see all those regions with great purpose and intentionality. Specifically, he traveled about all those regions seeking out local gatherings of believers. We call them churches. In order to go to them and strengthen them and encourage them and, and teach them in the Christian faith. Look at the rest of verse 32. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also. Not he stumbled across, not he happened upon, not he drifted into the neighborhood with. He came down to, it's a very purposeful statement, to the believers who were at Lydda. And then we see the same thing in verses 38 and 39. We say that while he was in Lydda, Lydda was near Joppa, verse 38. And the disciples in Joppa, having heard that Peter was in Lydda, well, they sent two men to him because they had a need, and they implored him, saying, do not delay in coming to us. So what does Peter do? Peter arose, and he went with them with the purpose of meeting whatever need he was going to find there, whatever needed to be done among believers in Jesus Christ. Again, in a word, Peter's approach to life as a follower of Christ was a thoroughly intentional purpose. And, and I would suggest to you that, that that also means that Peter's way of life was thoroughly Christian, thoroughly Christ-like. Because if you go back to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, you don't need to turn there, but maybe you want to mark it down. The last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before going back to heaven, Peter would have been, of course, there when he spoke them. Some of us may remember those words, know those words well. If not, here's what they are. He, Jesus said, all power, all authority has been given to me, and I am now telling you to go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them, teach them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples. But really, literally, in the original language, what Jesus said, he didn't simply say, go as if you're at the starting line, start running. The literal translation of Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, now, as you are going, make disciples of all the nations. You say, as you're going where? Wherever God sends you. Wherever God leads you. 
wherever God has placed you, whether you're happy about it at the moment or not. As you are going about your business, as you are going about living daily life, you have one primary assignment above every other assignment in life, make disciples. Tell them about Jesus. Preach the gospel to them. Point them to Christ. Strengthen their faith. And so I would suggest to you that based on that, Peter's just doing what Jesus told him to here. He's going about his business. He's doing what he has been told. And along the way, he's making disciples. An intentional way of life. And that's why I really think we shouldn't look at these 12 verses as as really a record of two miraculous moments in Peter's life and his ministry But rather, and this is important, this is a distinction, rather as two divine appointments God presented him with as he was going about the business of daily life. He was just paying attention. He was ready when they came. Recently I read a book, read the story of of the Jesuits, one of the lines of of the priesthood in the Catholic Church, or different lines of priests in the Catholic Church, and we don't need to get into that this morning at all, but... There's one particular line of priests in the Catholic Church. They're known as the Jesuits. You've probably heard that term before. They've been around for about 450 years. And one of the really interesting things that that defines them, that makes them distinct from other lines of priests in the Catholic Church, is the way that their founder, St. Ignatius Loyola, defined their mission. He said, here's what's going to make us as Jesuits different from the other lines of priests. And he put it this way. It's an interesting term, but if you think about it, it's really powerful. He said, we are in this priesthood, in this line as Jesuits, we will be men who live with one foot raised. One foot raised. You say, what does that mean? It means always ready to go. Always ready to step out. We are not going to be men who live with two feet raised, on the couch, head back, dozing, in front of the TV, passed out. Lord, when you call, I'll try to pull it together. We will be men who live with one foot raised. And as a result of that, from their very start 450 years ago, anyone who wanted to join that order and got through what it took to enter that order made a solemn vow that for the rest of their life, that whenever duty called, whenever their superiors called, whether it was to go across the street, across town, or literally around the world within 48 hours, you would go. No questions asked, because that was God's design. Therefore, they had to live with one foot raised, always ready for the opportunity that presented itself. That's a really cool way to look at life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself, do I live with that kind of intentionality? Do I want to live with that kind of intentionality? Then when God presents an opportunity, I don't have to get ready. I am ready. I'm prepared for what he brings my way. I think that was Peter's approach, a very Jesus-like approach way of life. He went about his business ready for what God brought his way. That's the first sign that he'd walk with Jesus. It's a sign in our lives. We say, do I really walk with Jesus? Do I know him and have a relationship with him? Well, how do I live? Is my life a life of intentionality or aimlessness? Second, as I said, we're going to move from very broad and general to more and more specific. There's a second sign, sort of all over this passage that that Peter was a man who had walked and was continuing to walk with Jesus. And that was this, that within and underneath his very Jesus-like way of life, he demonstrated, he presented a very Jesus-like compassion for people. Peter was a man who exuded Jesus-like, Christ-like compassion for other people. And and here I would say again is is further evidence for for my claim that that this really isn't a a miracle-centric passage but that it's a ministry-centric passage. It's a people-centric story that, that we are being presented here. Because, And I want you to see this, and we're going to do this real quickly. We've read through the passage once. I want to skim through it 
Again, I want you to take note of the way that Luke, the author of this chapter of this book, writes. Because Luke, and this is typical throughout the Gospel of Luke and all through the book of Acts, Luke is into details. He's into specific names and places and people and towns and, and, and things that others might breeze over or leave out. And I want you to pay attention, just as I very, very quickly go through this passage, to all the detail that he includes in his account of these two miracles, all the names and places. Follow along, starting in verse 32. We're told that as Peter, we know he's already the main character, was traveling through all those regions, he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, Lydda was a real town. About 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, was on the Mediterranean coast. Everybody in Israel would have known where that was. And it says in verse 33 that when he got to Lydda, he found a man named Aeneas. Not a guy, he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden, specifically his condition. He had been ill for eight years. And, and, And he meets Aeneas, and he heals Aeneas in the name of Jesus Christ. And we're told then in verse 35 that everyone who lived in Lydda, this is a big statement, Everyone who lived in Lydda, the town, Sharon, that would have been the region or the province. When they saw this, they turned to the Lord. Scene then shifts from Lydda in verse 35 to Joppa in verse 36. He says, now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. Now, Joppa was 10 miles farther up the road from Lydda, along the Mediterranean coast, 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Again, everybody would have known where that was. And in verse 36, we're told that there was a disciple that in in Aramaic, in the local dialect, they called her Tabitha. But in Greek, they called her, unfortunately, Dorcas. She had two different names, but they wanted to make sure as a seaport, as a very cosmopolitan place, that everybody knew exactly who he was talking about. Whether you were a Greek speaker or an Aramaic speaker, everybody knew who this woman was. Attention to detail. We're told about her condition and her problem, which was so dire, that the disciples in Lydda, we're told in verse 38, sent two men to him saying, do not delay in coming to us. And so Peter does, and he arrives in verse 39 in Joppa. And he goes into this upper room where they have laid her body. And we're told that all the widows, all her fellow, perhaps she was a widow as well, but the women who were closest to her, her dearest friends, they were there and they were weeping and they were telling stories and showing tunics and garments that she used to make, telling about how much they loved her, of course, how much they would have missed her, just like anyone else would do when you lose a loved one. And then what are we told in verse 40? That Peter, he went in, her name, Tabitha, arise. She rises from the dead. He presents her back to them. And then we come down to the end of verse 43. Luke didn't need to tell us this, but he did. He said, and then Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner by the name of Simon. Now, why do I take the time to to sort of belabor that point? Two reasons. First, and this isn't necessarily sort of directly connected to to what we're looking at here, what we're driving at, but I think it's an important point to make. First reason I want you to pay attention to the detail that we all need to pay attention to the detail Luke uses here is because because his inclusion of names and places and and time references and all the rest are, are sort of implied proof that these miracles really happened. Because you see, in that day, just like in this, there were people who were skeptical. People who are laying in bed eight years don't suddenly get up in full health and rise and walk. People who are dead don't rise from the dead. They don't come back from the dead. And certainly a guy like Peter doesn't have the power to make that happen. I mean, just as, just as now as, as then, people would have been skeptical. So what's Luke do here? He includes so much detail in this story that he goes, all right, prove me wrong. I'll tell you where it happened. I'll tell you who was there. I'll tell you how it happened. I'll tell you when it happened. I've got all kinds of witnesses. You don't believe me? Go search it out. Do the work for yourself. Luke says, in telling you these miracles, some would call them crazy stories, there's nothing to hide. 
God did these things. But more significant to us and and sort of what we're doing or how we're approaching the passage this morning is how it shows us. And I'm going to make another distinction, and it seems like semantics, but it's very, very significant. I think what this attention to detail, specifically the names, tells us is that Peter was not a guy who simply went around doing ministry. Now, you may not be familiar with the term doing ministry, but I'm in ministry, and I hear it every day. People talk about doing ministry, doing my ministry, carrying out my ministry. And I get what people are saying in that sense, but Peter was not a guy who did ministry. You know what Peter was? Peter was a guy who, like Jesus before him, went around ministering to people. And there's a difference. Lots of people can do ministry. Not everybody ministers to people. So why do you make a a distinction there? Why do we need to to pay attention to that? Well, because one approach, doing ministry, sort of conveys, and I know not everybody means it this way, but it certainly can convey the fact that really what I'm doing is kind of about me and my talents and my gifts and my desires and my opportunity and, and what I get to do for Jesus. And I do it among other people. I come and I show up and I fulfill my role. I'm here on time. I do what I was asked to do. I make sure it's taken care of and I turn the lights off when I leave. I'm a responsible person. I do ministry. But ministering to people is different. Peter's approach of not doing ministry but ministering to people, speaking to Aeneas who probably no one else much cared to speak to, speaking to Tabitha and those there in that room, calling them by name. Peter's way the sign that he had walked with Jesus is he didn't work among people, he worked with people. He spoke to people. He didn't take care of the church, he took care of people and their needs. And he did it in a humble and a personal and a compassionate way. And and I would contend, and listen, when I ask these questions, you know I'm asking them as much of myself as anybody else. But I would contend that if we are serious as well about moving toward maturity in Christ, That's a distinction we need to grapple with and and, and wrestle through in our own lives as we do whatever we do as followers of Jesus Christ. So just ask yourself this question. Does the way I do what God has called me to do, whether my role is comparatively great or small, what does it convey? Does it convey dutiful assignment? I am a responsible person who serves in the church and does what I'm supposed to do. Or does it convey Christ-like compassion? I'm not in a hurry that you're not just another number, you're not just another assignment, that you are someone who is deeply loved by God, who is at a point of need or a point of of encouragement or whatever whatever it is. Dutiful assignment or Christ-like compassion. Am I learning what it means to to display, to radiate like Peter did, a Jesus-like compassion for people? Do I have a Jesus-like approach to life? Am I intentional in, in serving him as I go about my business? Do I have a Jesus-like compassion for people? Do I actually care about names and faces and, and families and needs? And then the third one takes that and it narrows it down even further. We see a third sign, more precise sign that Peter was a man who had walked with Jesus, which is the, within this context of a Jesus-like compassion for people, that Peter was a man who had a Jesus-like response to the needs he encountered. That he responded to needs in a very Christ-like kind of way. And for this, I do want to take a closer look at the two miracles that were performed here. So look again at your Bible, Acts chapter 9, first of all, verses 33 and 34, where we're told this. Then upon arriving in Lydda, Peter found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. 
And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. Now, just as an aside, I want you to think about what a remarkable miracle that is. Aeneas, get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up and made it. Because think how many times you've said that to your teenagers, to no effect whatsoever. (laughs) You've stood over the bed. You said, get up and make it. And then you did it again the next day and nothing ever happened. This is a miracle, I'm telling you. (laughs) We'll pray for you. Second one, the second account, verse 40, verses 40 and 41. Peter sent them all out upon arriving in the room where Tabitha's body had been laid, and, and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And, and he gave her his hand, and he raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, and this is a beautiful sort of scene of reunion, he presented her alive back to them. Now, it's interesting that in the Gospels, we're told, and and if you've read the Gospels, maybe this thought has occurred to you already, that that Jesus performed two almost identical miracles to this. In John chapter 5, he healed a paralytic who had not been bedridden eight years, but 38 years. And in Mark chapter 5, he came to a room Jesus did, and he raised a, a little girl up from the dead. Jesus did the very same sorts of things. But the point here isn't merely that Jesus or or that Peter did the same kinds of miracles that Jesus did as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The real point here, I think, is the manner in which Peter did them, which was just as Christ-like as the rest of his lifestyle and behavior, another sign that he'd walked with Jesus. Because if you look closer at these two miracles, here's what I want you to see. Three things about the way that Peter responded to these needs. Just real quickly, let me point them out. First of all, in responding to these needs, in fact, in working these miracles, Peter, he exudes, he radiates, he expresses an absolute dependence on Jesus Christ's power. He knew that, as Paul would write elsewhere, the surpassing greatness of the power is not within us, it's Christ. And we see that in in, in healing Aeneas. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Let's just make sure that as you're about to get up and walk, you understand who did this. It's not me, it's him absolute dependence on the power of Jesus Christ. Peter knew, I can't do this. I don't have this ability, but Jesus does. He knew that anything good that happened would be because Jesus did it. An absolute number one, dependence on Christ's power. He also did these miracles. He also responded to these needs. Secondly, with an absolute devotion to prayer. Don't miss that. Don't miss the vital nature of prayer in these miracles. Look at verse 40. It says, Peter sent them. He comes to the room. He, he comforts the widows, the church there, who are grieving over the loss of Tabitha. And then he sends them all out. And what does he do? He kneels down and prays. Why? He didn't know what God was going to do. He didn't know. Am I here to comfort and, and teach these people how to walk through grief? Or am I here to, to raise the dead? Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm going to ask you, Lord, what I should do. Because because when we pray, what do we do? We humbly acknowledge, I don't have the answers. God does. So Lord, I need wisdom. And and you tell us that if anyone lacks wisdom, they should ask of you. And you give freely. And and you give it abundantly. You'll give wisdom to your people. Lord, I need grace to to figure out how to handle this situation. And, And you promise that if we come before your throne of grace, you will give us mercy and grace to help in time of need. So Lord, because I don't know what to do, I'm asking you. I'm going to pray. Remember, Jesus himself was the Son of God, and the Bible tells us he spent all kinds of time praying, always, always by prayer. And then the third thing I'd point out very quickly, and this is maybe more subtle, but I think it's just as important, 
So I think we should pay attention to Peter's, what I would just simply term discretion, the discretion that he used in ministering to needs. Look at, again at, once more at verses 39 and 40. So, so Peter arose and went with them. He responded to the call. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, and they were weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that she used to make while she was with them. And then he sent them all out of the room. Now, why did Peter do that? I would think if he's about to raise the dead, if he has any inclination whatsoever, he wants a crowd. Peter did not want a crowd. Why? Because Peter hadn't come to put on a show. Peter was not an entertainer. He was not a wonder worker who's going to draw a crowd this time in the hopes of next time I come through getting a bigger one. Peter was not there to to draw a crowd. He wasn't there to entertain. He wasn't there to amaze people. He was there to meet a need. It just so happened to be a miraculous one in this instance. And so he clears the room because he understands it's not about me. His ambition, as we often say here, was to keep the main thing the main thing, and I think he did that by clearing the room. Let's just let God do his thing and not worry about me or, or anyone else getting the glory for it. And I would say that, that no matter what God has called you to do, just like God has called me to do certain things, that if you want to do it in a Jesus-like way, the same three things apply. You can't do without them. You cannot serve Christ without them. Without an absolute dependence on Christ's power, without a, a very serious devotion to prayer, and without the wisdom of, of remembering who it's really all about, let me ask you something. Do you teach Sunday school? Do you serve on the worship team? Do you deliver meals to families in their time of need? Do you stand at the door and serve as a greeter? Preach sermons? Teach lessons? Let me tell you something. Let's just burst all our collective bubble. Lots of people can do that. Lots of people can open a door and say good morning. Lots of people can make a meal. Lots of people, believe it or not, can put a Sunday school lesson together and not irreparably damage the children for the rest of their lives. It can be done. Okay? Just understand that. Lots of people can do that. And that's okay, that's the way God has equipped us. But listen, if we intend to make a difference for Jesus Christ, if we intend our greeting and our serving and our teaching and our singing and whatever else it is God's called us to do to to have an eternally significant impact as we respond, it must flow from dependence on Christ. We must pray it through every time. We must make sure that the main thing's the main thing. We're not here to put on a show. We're here to point people to Jesus Christ. Which takes us to the fourth and the final thing. Final sign that Peter was a man who had walked with Jesus. He had a Jesus-like intentional approach to life. He had a Christ-like compassion for people. He had a very Jesus-like response to human need. And and, and beneath it all, undergirding it every step of the way, was his Jesus-like devotion to the gospel. He had a a Christ-like passion, devotion to the gospel. You know, throughout this message this morning, I have said to you that this is, this, this, these 12 verses tell us the story of two great miracles. And here's where I repent, because that's not true. <laughs> this passage is actually the story of three great miracles. And the third one, the one that I haven't mentioned yet, is actually the greatest miracle of them all. Because while in verse 34 we're told that Aeneas got up and walked, really big deal. And and in verse 41, we're told that Tabitha rose up from the dead. We would look at that and say, even bigger deal. That's not the point of these two stories. The point is what happened in in the wake or in the aftermath in response to them both. Look at verse 35. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Verse 42, Tabitha's resurrection became known all over Joppa, and many 
people believed in the Lord. In Matthew 9, Jesus asked a question. He asked it. He had actually, incidentally, he had just healed a, a man who'd been lame for a long, long time, raised him up, restored his health, did it on the Sabbath, which got everybody agitated. And rather than being praised, he gets confronted, and he's being chastised, and he's being criticized and accused. And so he just says, okay, hold on a second. Let me ask you a question. He said, which of, the two th- of these two things is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. I mean, and really be able to follow through. Which of these two things is easier to say? Pop quiz, which one? Is it easier to say rise up and walk? Or is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? It's easier to say rise up and walk. It's more difficult, more significant to be able to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because the forgiveness of sins cost the life of Jesus Christ. Many had to go to the cross. Many had to be nailed hands and feet. It meant his blood had to be shed. To truly say your sins are forgiven means Jesus Christ had to die. As Warren Wiersbe puts it in, in, his, in commenting on these verses, he says, the greater, the, the, the more difficult, the, more, the harder thing to say is your sins are forgiven. Why? He says, because salvation costs the greatest price, it produces the greatest results, and it brings the greatest glory to God because it takes sinners and turns them into worshipers for all eternity. And for Peter, as with Jesus, that was also the main thing, turning sinners into worshipers of Christ for all eternity. That was what it was all about. That was the point. And so what did Peter do? He just took the opportunities God put in front of him to to point sinners to faith in Jesus Christ, to point believers to a deeper walk with Christ. And you know what? That's the same reason we're here today. No miracles yet this morning, so far as I know. But as we worship we study the words, we are testimony of what God is doing in our city. We're doing this, understand, especially if you're new, for one reason, and that's to point people to faith in Jesus Christ and to point those who know him to a deeper walk with him to say, look at what he can do when we surrender to and walk with him. That's what we're here for this morning. And I'm going to ask, as I try to ask every Sunday, do you know him yet? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you recognized that, that the, the, the real need in your life, the real problem in your life, as in every life, is sin? Everything else is a symptom. Sin is the problem. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you realize that your greatest need is for forgiveness? That that sin be washed away? 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and he's righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And have you called on Jesus Christ as Savior? Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord. If you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If not, why not and why not now? Don't leave until that question is answered. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. We have one ambition here. We don't always get it right, but we sure strive for it. And that is to point to faith in Jesus. You know, whenever a baby is born, and, and praise God in our church family, we, we are witness to that, of that happening in our family here on a pretty regular basis. Even in the last month, a couple more babies have, have entered into our church family. You know, whenever a new baby is born, one of the first questions that's always asked, they're still even in the hospital room, is who does she look like? <laughs> who does he resemble most, mom or dad? Whose eyes does she have? Whose ears does he have? Whose nose? Whose hair? Whose whatever? And of course, those discussions are fun and, you know, 
they usually break down along in-law lines which way the Quay answers go, but, but who does he look like? Who does she resemble? And that's fun. But over time, what you begin, and this is not so concrete, there's not such a specific moment, but what you begin to observe or the question, at least among the parents, perhaps, hopefully, begins to become, is not who so much does he or she look like, that usually is settled eventually, who do they act like? Who do they behave like? Whose disposition, whose personality, whose attitude, whose responses do they resemble, do they display? And as Christians, spiritually speaking, that's the same question we should ask of ourselves. Who do I resemble? When people look at me, when my brothers and sisters in Christ look at me, when my family look at me, when my kids look at me, when my neighbors look at me, what do they see? You know we're not talking physical appearance. We're talking about spiritual character and disposition. Who do I look like? Who do I resemble in our way of life? Because the big idea of the message this morning is is very simple. You can probably figure it out for yourself. It's that we are meant to look more and more like Jesus. We are meant to look more and more like Jesus. Just a day at a time, a step at a time, an opportunity at a time, prayer at a time, to look more like Jesus. And the question, of course, is do we? Father, I pray that that you would cause your word to come to pass in every one of our lives, that you are Lord, the Scripture tells us in the business of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, you have a, an ambition, first and foremost, as your Word tells us, to take sinners and turn them into eternal worshipers of, of you and your Son, the Lord Jesus. But Father, once we're in, once we are saved, we realize that that's just the starting point, that then you begin this process of growing and teaching and purifying and refining and convicting and changing and moving us toward maturity and Father, I think that at regular inter- intervals, you want us to stop just as when we're getting in shape, we, we check our, our vitals, we check our, our weight, we check all these other things that indicate, am I, am I getting healthier? Am I headed the right direction? Lord, spiritually, I think you want us to ask the same thing. Am I more and more like Jesus today than yesterday, last month, last year, than when I began? Father, for some of us, that's a hard question to answer. Help us to know that in your grace that we can start anew, even this moment, even today. Father, I pray that you would begin to pour into us more and more that Christ-like compassion, Lord, that, that intentional way of life, the ability to see the needs in front of us, and then to know to ask you, what should I do? Father, this world is dying fast. The people in it are dying fast, and we have the only hope, the only answer in the gospel. Father, don't let us hide it. Let us live it and then speak it that more and more sinners might be turned into eternal worshipers of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.